It's, uh, it's so good to, to be back. It's so good to be with you. It's so good to worship with drums. So, Oli Rubiak, <laughs> thank you so much. The cost of going church planting is you have no drums for ages. So, <laughs> if you'd like to pray for us, a drummer would be, uh, would be ideal, I think. We've brought about 50 or so from Birmingham today. So, we all piled on the coach this morning and, uh, and headed over. And we, we, everyone turned up on time and we arrived on time. So, it's already a miraculous. <laughs> day for us. And, um, and as I said, it's just it's so, it's so good to be here. Uh, Julia and I uh, kind of grew up in the church. We both came here for university and absolutely loved it. And so when God actually called us to move to Birmingham, it was actually quite heart-wrenching because we thought, well, we love Nottingham. We love being here. We love Grace Church. Why would we ever go anywhere else, but obviously God spoke to us, so we didn't have too much choice. We had to be obedient to him and follow him. And um, I just want to tell you a little story about some of that process and what God did with me. Um, Basically, quite early on, when when God spoke, I thought Birmingham is where we should go. That's, That's where I feel God is leading us. And we began praying about that and asking God, is this, is this for us? And then my sister-in-law came to visit, and she didn't know anything was going on. She didn't know God was speaking to us. She didn't know we were praying and weighing this up. And then she began to tell me about a fantastic new church that was starting in Birmingham called Gas Street. And so she, she said, there's this church in London, HTV, I knew HTV, where that's where Alpha started. And they are sending... <laughs> the bee's knees of a team to Birmingham with a two million pound building project, the best team you could ever imagine, resources. And she was like, this, it's, gonna, it's gonna be amazing. This is like everyone in the world should go to Birmingham to be part of this church plan. And you know, it's, it's just gonna be fantastic. And uh, you know, if I was a more godly man, I would have thought, Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Lord. You know, that you're at work in this city, you're on the move, you're going ahead of us, that this city needs countless more Christians to preach the gospel, to reach people. Would have been quite a good reaction if, uh, if I'd have been maybe a little bit more mature. But my reaction was, oh, we might as well not go then, right? <laughs> What's even the point, right? If these guys are going with all their glitz and glamour, we, we, we might as well just stay here. And then I began to think, well, maybe there's other cities that we could go to. And literally started going around a map of the UK thinking, what about Sheffield, maybe Leeds, you know, maybe where there's not such good churches. It's like well, the most ridiculous mindset that you can possibly get into. And quite quickly, you'll be glad to hear, God got hold of me. And I thought, this is not perhaps the best way to think about going to start a new church. And he began to, I think, refine some of my motivation to actually believe that we've got to go to preach the gospel. We have to go to proclaim him, that if there's lots of other Christians coming, that is only good news for his kingdom, that there's 1.1 million people in Birmingham, most of whom don't know Jesus. If God's speaking, how can we not go? And slowly, my thinking, got changed. Think, no, we're brothers and sisters. We're on the same team. We're going the same direction. This is God. But I had my heart and my motivation got totally transformed in the process where I had to realize this isn't really about me. 
which again, you all know that, but it took me a little while to think, this isn't about me going to Birmingham. God is on the move. He has people in that city that he wants to save. I just need to be obedient. And it totally transformed my whole idea of what success looks like. So actually, being faithful, following him, preaching the gospel, that's all we need to do. And it took a little time. My motivation got changed. It's still being changed, but a good part of it got done there and then. And that's really what I want to speak to us about this morning. Our motivation in the gospel following God. So if you'd like to turn with me to the book of Philippians, I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. As I was going through this, the commentators reckon that almost as much has been written about this passage as the whole of the rest of the book of Philippians. So it's absolutely chock full of truth and theology and um, it's the kind of potentially quite an early Christian hymn that Paul either wrote or includes to encourage this church to build them up and uh, we're going to take a look at it. So Philippians 2 verse 3 I think it's yeah it's coming up behind me. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit like when you go to Birmingham. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. What a passage. So, uh, as succinctly as I can, I'll try and uh, delve into this passage, which, as I said, is absolutely chocked full of truth and life and hope. And uh, we'll start with the, the hymn from verse, verse 7 or verse 6, I think it is. Paul is writing and trying to reach a church in Philippi to explain to them just how good Jesus is. And he's holding him up as an example of what it means to serve, to be humble, uh, how we should follow him. And uh, he begins almost right back in eternity, (coughs) that he talks about the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who decides voluntarily to lay aside his majesty and glory and all the privileges and delights of heaven to become a man to come down, to live amongst us, to be like us, to live like us, to live our lives. And he he doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto or seized. Actually, he lays that aside and he he comes down. And it's the exact opposite of what our first ancestor did. So you think about Adam and Eve in the garden. And God said to them, 
you can enjoy all the benefits of this place. You can eat, you can enjoy, you can look after the garden, but what you mustn't do is eat from this one tree. And then the enemy comes and deceives them and says, you know, if you take this fruit, you won't surely die. Rather, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And they believe the enemy, unfortunately. They take him at his word, even though it is a lie. They eat, their eyes are opened in a way, but ultimately they die. That this man, Adam, who was the image of God, the glory of God, sent by God, tries to grasp equality with God for himself and perishes. We think, what a contrast between him and the Son of God, who is God, who doesn't consider equality of God something to be held on to. Though he is the image of God, he lays that aside. Well, he, doesn't, he, he keeps his divinity, but he lays aside his majesty. He lays aside all the privileges he has, and he comes to save us. Which is remarkable. It's, just, it's, it's absolutely breathtaking that this, the second person of the Trinity would be prepared to come, the only way to save us, and do it. And Paul, he's kind of, he's laying this out for this church to make them worship. And you might think from verse 6, you know, though he was in the form of God, does that mean he was a bit like God? Does it mean he was a kind of God or a, a, like a semi-God? No, no, he was fully God. And um, when it says in verse 7, he took on the form of a servant, it doesn't mean he was a kind of servant or uh, a bit of a servant. No, he was, he was fully God. He was a real servant. He was fully man. And the second person of the Trinity somehow became a man. Fully God and fully man all at the same time. If that doesn't blow your mind, if you're sitting there thinking, yeah, I've got it. I haven't got it. I'm, I'm still trying to work this out. He's fully God, fully man, and came to live amongst us. And verse 7 continues and says that he emptied himself. So again, doesn't that imply that? Did, did he become less when he became a man? Did he, did he lose something by coming amongst us? Actually, no. He emptied himself by adding servanthood to him. So if you like maths, this is going to make your mind boggle. Uh, how, how, how does that work? This is another one you think, I'm not sure I'm going to get my head around this. He emptied himself by becoming something he'd never been before. God became a human being and a servant. I mean, again, just pause for a moment and think, this is my God that we're talking about. This actually happened, that there was a moment in eternity where the second person of the Trinity thought to himself, I don't know if he thought to himself, <laughs> when you get into Trinity, it's very difficult not to go awry in how this happened, but there was a moment where he voluntarily decided to become a man. I mean, it's outrageous. It's a grand miracle, is how C.S. Lewis describes it. And he writes in um, Mere Christianity, the second person in God, the Son, became human himself, was born into the world as an actual man, a real man of particular height, with hair of a particular color, speaking a particular language, weighing so many stone, 
have a straw pole. How many stone was Jesus? They weighed a certain amount. The eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that a baby, and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. <laughs> Which is what we're going to do for a moment. <laughs> think about what it would be like to become a slug. This is going a bit weird, isn't it? <laughs> Slugs are a bit weird. Slug, they're slimy. Occasionally, my girls will be brave enough to pick them up, but they're kind of like, like yeah, sticky, slimy. We had one, a rogue one in our home recently, and it kept leaving a little silver trail. We could never find it in the morning. You just see the evidence that it had existed. Imagine for a moment that you would become a slug, just like slugs. I can't really imagine it, if I'm honest. I'm throwing it out there, but it's like, Steve, this is the most preposterous illustration that anyone's ever given in a message like this. How to become a human being, to become a slug, is just nonsense. You know, we have all our faculties and thoughts and emotions and life and ups and downs, and what, leave all of that to become a slug. What does it, what does it even mean to be a slug? And you think, well, silly, ridiculous. We are at least in the same category. So human being and slug, admittedly, are vastly different in their makeups. And I had some biology teachers here who could tell me just how different we are. But fundamentally, we are both created things. Man is created. Slugs are created. Are you with me? Are you loving this analogy? <laughs> God and man are leagues apart. They're not the same. He is uncreated, eternal, perfect, holy, glorious, majestic, wonderful, amazing. We are man. We'd be made by him. That God would become a man is far more amazing and wonderful and mind-blowing than you or I becoming a slug. So if you're thinking to yourself, well, how can't I imagine becoming a slug? This is too weird. This is, this is too extreme. It's just the distance is too far. <coughs> that distance is that much. God's is as far as you can imagine. It should blow our minds to think this is what God did. In the second person of the Trinity, he became like me to save me. It should make us worship. What did he do? It, you can't make this up. It's just it's the most amazing thing that's ever happened. It truly is the grand miracle. And Paul, as he continues, he almost ramps up the amazing condescension and humility that Jesus Christ demonstrates. So he says not only did he, second person Trinity, become a man, but he became obedient to the point of death. I think Wesley had it right when he said, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." Try and get your head around that one. As well. how, does that, how does that work? The immortal dies. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's like if you think the incarnation is just incredible humility, or think that Jesus Christ was prepared to die 
is, just, is like the next level of humility, humility upon humility. And not only was he prepared to die, he was prepared to die on a cross. Which, if you think Paul is writing this in Rome to a church that is in kind of a miniature Rome where Roman citizens is like, they would never be crucified. It would be abhorrent to them. It is an inhumane way to die that if you said that your saviour died on a cross, it would be preposterous. How could God become so weak and be so humiliated and become such a, a laughingstock? And yet for Paul, his boast is, he who was God came down and died, even died on a cross. It should make us worship. It was his love that overflowed. It was his love, I'm going to save these people. Though we were like slugs to him. He loved us. He wanted us. He gave everything for us. He was prepared to come as a man, to die in our place, to die on a cross. He did it for you. He did it for me. It's amazing. But then the most... I think challenging slash scary part of this is that Paul writes this for our example to follow. So you know, this is how humble and servant-hearted and amazing Jesus Christ is. Use that as an example to live like that. So he starts, if you think back to verse 3 with some of these commands... Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why? Like, how? Well, look at Jesus. Look what he did. Try and emulate that. I mean, it's just who can compete? Who can compare with his incredible sacrifice? And yet that is, at least on surface glance, what Paul is doing here. And he's writing to this particular church because they're currently facing division and that they need to persevere. And so he says to them, you know, to persevere, you need unity. How do you have unity? You need to be humble. You need to serve one another. You need to put others ahead of yourself and not do anything out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. And, um, and he, lays, he lays Jesus out. As a great example. And I think, just personally for a moment, reading this, I think, you know, should we all be humble? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I think, I mean, hopefully most of you would agree with me. Like, humility is a good attribute to, uh, to have and to hold. And, um, you know, in theory, should we all follow Jesus and try and live this out? I think I'd mostly get nods and yeah. yes. So... <laughs> We're ready to go. In practice, I find it much more difficult. That's where I'm going to go with the rest of this message. I was watching Have I Got News For You the other day and um, saw a great tweet from Donald Trump who, when the Pope was appointed, said, I really like this guy. He's a humble man, just like me. <laughs> probably why I like him so much, he says. <laughs> that even someone, you know, the top of government in another nation would consider humility, whatever you think of him, would, he at least would consider humility a noble attribute. I imagine most of us would, yet it is so hard to actually obtain. I think about 
James and John in the Gospels who were with Jesus. And you think, if you've been with Jesus for about two years, you'd, you'd learn some humility. You'd, like, you'd be with him, who's he's perfect and glorious. He's always right. He loves people. He helps people. He does miracles. You know, he is perfect in every way. You'd think, well, I just kind of slink to the background a little bit and just let him take center stage. And yet they go, James and John, with their mother to Jesus and say to him, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, we'll be at the right. John on the left is going to be so good. Like, Jesus, you can take center stage, but there we will be with you in the places of honor, in the places of glory. This is going to be wonderful. And the other disciples get indignant and Jesus has to take them aside and challenge them and shape something. A bit like me going to Birmingham, I think, but far worse because it's in the Bible. They just, <laughs> their pride was on display and Jesus had to get hold of them. And you think, well, that's two pretty good disciples who are with Jesus all the time. How much more do I need it? I'm thinking about myself and thinking one area this crops up quite a bit is in married life to the point where this is in some ways is a kind of flippant example, but I don't want to give too much of my sin away. <laughs> Julie and I were on a holiday last week, and we were out kind of on a bit of a day trip, got back into the car, turned on the engine. The temperature on the, on the gauge said it was 28 degrees. I was like, yeah, it feels hot. It's, a, it's been a hot day. Julia says, I think it's only 24 degrees. That's what it says on my phone. You think, oh, harmless conversation. <laughs> uh, that can't go wrong. We'll just kind of see how it plays out and we'll find out what the real temperature is. I'm sticking to my guns. It's 28 degrees. <laughs> Why would the temperature be wrong on the car? Like, it's obviously correct. Your information is obviously mistaken. So we'll just both agree that it's 28 degrees and <laughs> get on with our day. As we start driving, the temperature starts ticking down. It's like 27.5. 27, 26.5, and I'm, I'm still holding on. I'm like, it's never going to get down to 24. Obviously, it does get down to 25. And even then, I need just about conceded that I might possibly have been wrong. And you think, this is a woman that I have made vows to, that I'm going to love and cherish and pour my life out for. And in something as simple as this, my pride <laughs> has come to the fore, and I barely concede what's, go what's going on. I was thinking, I, this, maybe it's just me, you might be thinking, what is he doing up here? He is hopeless. The amount of pride that he found in his life is just too much. But when I, so another example would be when I was at work and I had a really good idea, which I shared with my team, and they thought, Steve, that's a really good idea. And um, then one of them shared it with the kind of the higher up levels and they said, that is a really, really good idea. And the person that shared it got all the credit. Oh, eh? Oh. So you might think, okay, hum a humble, mature man, I'm just glad the idea got the prominence that it deserved. And that, you know, for, for good of my team and beyond, you know, it went really well. And I'm just... All glory to God, because I serve him at, don't I, at the end of the day. I serve him. I do it all for him. And I'm also quite polite, so I didn't really say anything. Just, oh, well, you know, glad it went well, guys. Inside, furious. Can't believe it. Someone has pinched my idea. This is so unfair. I didn't get any credit. I love the idea of humility. 
love it. I just think it's such a good thing that we should aspire after. But in my life, tricky. I don't know if you can relate to that at all in any way. But the thing is, if we actually did it, if we became like Jesus and were willing to put others first and lay aside our reputation and our glory and our honor, we would thrive. So we would have the best marriages in the whole world. If I could actually live this out day to day, marriage would be amazing. If you're not married, your friendships would be transformed if you could live this out. And just, I'm not going to consider myself first, I'm going to consider you. Work, church. If church represented this, we'd be the most appealing, beautiful, wonderful place for anyone to come and be part of. People would be begging us to get in on it. Wouldn't they? And yet, it's a challenge. It's a tricky one. So, how much time have I got, Ben? You've got another 13 minutes. 13 minutes. I'm bang on track. I am going to, I'm going to give you, there's, I'm sure there's more objections in terms of being humble. I'm going to give you my top three for why I struggle and how I think we can actually get past it and start living out some of this stuff. So my first concern is, but what if I am humble and I serve, but nobody serves me back? That's my main concern. I think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm in if you're all in, is my kind of attitude. <laughs> but I don't want to go first, right? I, I, if I serve, I kind of want a bit of reciprocation going on. And also, because you might be sat thinking, oh, this is all well and good in theory, we could all be humble, but I am so tired, and I'm just about hanging in there. Let's not talk about how much I need to give and serve and pour myself out just yet. Just maybe next week we'll come on to that. And I did, my, kind of my message to you is that the gospel, fundamentally, is come and be served. That Jesus would say to you, I want to serve you. That we start with him. He is the one who left the glories of heaven and came and died and died on a cross for you. He has gone to extreme lengths to save you, to serve you. If you're here today and you think, I need some encouragement, I, but I need joy before I can do anything. I need strengthening. I need help. I'm going through a pretty difficult situation. Come to him and he will serve you. He will. Whatever you need, whatever you ask for, he doesn't always answer exactly as we want, but he will serve you perfectly. He's got a brilliant track record of it. Brilliant. That this message is not, let's all just start serving. First, come and be served. Receive everything you need. And then we can talk about going, serving. The second one is essentially, I still don't really want to. It's not the most profound objection, <laughs> but it's kind of like we've talked about it, I've thought about it, I've worshipped Jesus a little bit, but I, I still don't want to. And I, uh, there's a proverb that sprung to my mind as I was preparing this, which is Proverbs 20, verse 17, which says, The bread of deceit is sweet to a man but afterwards turns to gravel 
in his mouth. That in other words, sin, so this would be obtaining bread deceitfully, initially is so appealing. You think this is going to be so good, but ultimately when you eat it, it just turns to, it turns to gravel. It's rubbish, it leads to death, it doesn't lead to life. And that is true of all sin. That's what Adam and Eve found when they were in the garden. And they were told, if you take this, the promise is so good, you're going to have your eyes opened, you'll be like God, take and eat. Look how it turned out for them. And righteousness is the exact opposite. So righteousness doesn't look particularly sweet in the moment. Like if I said to you all, who's up for a spontaneous three-day fast? Maybe if you're honest, would think... I'll let you do that, Steve. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for offering. Like, who wants to get up really early and pray? That sounds like a good thing to do. Most of us, if we're honest, think, maybe, but I quite like my bed, quite like sleep. Righteousness, it doesn't necessarily appeal in a sense of just get this straight away and you can have it and it'll be sweet, but it leads to life. Yes, that if you can get to a place think, no, I am going to fast. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do one day. I'm going to go about food and put Jesus first. I'm going to do it. It will lead to righteousness. He will change you. If I'm going to get up early. I'm going to do it. I'm going to pray. I'm going to, even if it's for 10 minutes in the morning, I'm going to get out of bed and I'm going to seek him. It will lead you to life. That humility is not that appealing. It's like, come on, let's all be humble. It doesn't work like that. It's, you have to look ahead. You have to kind of dig for buried treasure and think, no, I want to cultivate this in my life because it's going to honor him. It's going to do me good. It's going to bless all my relationships. Even when I don't feel like it, I believe it. It's a conviction. I'm going after this because he's like it and I want to be like him. And the third one is, in a way, they're similar, but... What if I'm taken advantage of? So if I think I'm going to be really humble and go to work and everyone just runs riot all over me, then surely that's not the right thing to do. Like, as a Christian, shouldn't you stand up for yourself a bit more? Or that kind of thinking. And I think my answer to this and my conclusion as well is let God honour you. Someone prayed it out, I think, earlier in the worship. He will fight your battles. He will fight your battles. He will honor you. If you follow him, if you are prepared to say, I'm going to be like you. You did this, I'm going to be like this. He will honor you. And there's this amazing word in verse 9. Simple in some ways, but also profound. Therefore. Therefore. That, you know, we go back to where we started. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, humbled himself. He took on our likeness. He became a man. This is the stuff that should make us worship and revel in him. He became a man. He lived our lives. He came to save us. He died in our place. He died on a cross. He was, he was humbled. To the world, he was defeated. He went through the most ridiculous trial that was the biggest miscarriage of justice that the world had ever known. That The Holy One was declared guilty. He was humbled. He was, people tried to humiliate him, spat on him, you know, gave away his garments, abandoned him. He was left by everybody. He, he condescended. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. He has been utterly vindicated. That the Father looks on him and sees this amazing condescension that he would voluntarily lay everything aside to win us and save us. He would do it gladly for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. The Father vindicates him. Three days later at the resurrection, 40 days later at the ascension, he is crowned in glory. He is the reigning king and victor and saviour and lord. He is glorious and he's been given a name now which is above every other name. Jesus is quite a simple name. It's a human name. And now that is the name by which everybody gets saved. It's like God took that name and just said, right, this is going to be the best name ever. That if you call on it, if you believe it, if you trust in it, if you believe in him, you'll be saved. You'll be served. You'll be looked after. That he is now seated in the heavenlies with all glory, with everything restored, plus some, if that was even possible. That the angels, the elders, the saints gather around his throne, worshipping him, adoring him, praising him. He has been totally vindicated. And he's our saviour. He's the one we follow. And if we are prepared to follow in his footsteps, to serve, to be humble, to do things that maybe we don't necessarily want to do, God will vindicate us. He, you know, you think, well, what if people run, run roughshed? 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 Roughshed. <laughs> Easy for me to say. <laughs> and then what's going to happen to me? What's my life going to be like? How am I going to cope? He will honour you. Because even, you know, here today, just for a moment, before we go off and enjoy the ice cream and the delights of the fun day, I, just, I want to encourage you just take a moment and just worship him. Because that's where it all begins. That's how you start. How do you begin this kind of process? We just worship him. Come and let him serve you and speak truth into your heart and into your life and tell you that you're a son or a daughter that he loves and he's with you and he's by your side and he's got his Holy Spirit available for you. And once you get filled up, you think, yeah, I love God. I lo- he loves me. I love him. Then let's go and serve. And that's how King's Church Birmingham is going to thrive, in my humble opinion. <laughs> We're just going to follow Jesus yes. and trust him. That's how Grace Church Nottingham, is, that's why when I come back, it's going to be double the size. <laughs> now, as we trust him, he will bless us. He'll look after us. He'll look after you. And as you, you know, as you go off to workplaces and back into family life and you're trying to serve your spouse or your kids or your friends or whoever it might be, trust him. He'll look after you. He'll honour you. He'll care for you. He'll be there for you. Amen? Amen.